You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Chris Hope here, joined by 2017 NLC New York. Fellow Emily Santos is here. We always enjoy talking to people on the opposite coast. We'll hear what's up over there as this Friday afternoon of LA is filled with smoke and other things. Hopefully this gives you a little bit of relief. So let's get to it. Yeah, Emily, tough day in LA. Half of it seems to be on fire, unfortunately. How are things in New York? I hear that. I mean, quite the opposite. We're having a pretty crazy rainstorm right now. So I can't say that that's nearly as bad as a fire, um, nor that that's yeah. something that we ever experience here in New York. But um, True. Yeah, well, make sure to send us stuff and stay safe if you're near Malibu in those areas. And listen, when people come and visit you in New York, where do you usually take them? What are your, your touristy spots? Yeah, so, you know, I actually think that one of my favorite spots in New York is the High Line. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there. I have, yeah. You have? Okay, great. I know it's not like the most exciting tourist spot. I mean, when you have like the Statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building, but the High Line is just so nice. You know, it's peaceful, it's pretty, it's outdoors. um, And I think most importantly, it's not what people expect to see in New York City. So, And how long have you lived in New York? Are you from there? So I'm from Connecticut, um, northeastern Connecticut. So Boston is our city over New York. But I've been in the, in New York City since I came here for college um, to go to NYU, which was now scarily close to ten years ago. <laughs> so never. I, 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 I'd take. I would love to have ten years. So I don't want to hear any scare talk. So enjoy your youth, people out there. Um, right. How did you hear about NLC in the first place? Somebody in your network had done it, or did you hear about it randomly? Yeah. So. Um, you know, I actually, as you probably know, I'm I'm kind of an unconventional um, NLC applicant who works in the private sector um, and has a, had a very corporate um, background. And it was actually in 2016 when I had um, you know a phase of being really dead set on transitioning into the public sector for my career. So I was volunteering on a lot of local campaigns and stuff like that. And I met somebody um, who has been a leader in our chapter since probably its advent. And he encouraged that I apply as a fellow. And I remember saying to him, like, I'll never get in. You know, I don't work in politics like this, you know, because I knew I'd been to like the fundraisers and kind of considered myself like, you know, just so different than people that were traditionally fellows. So I remember saying, you know, why would I apply? I'll never get in, you know, and he really emphasized to me that NLC valued like that diversity in thought and background and really lived by, you know, our mission that we try to, you know, make make the city a more progressive place across diversity, I mean, across um, sectors and backgrounds and whatnot. And so they would value that. So I was like, okay, you know, I'd love to apply. And I did, and I got in. Um, and I think that's what, re- what really makes the group so special to me is their openness to me, you know, and me not, you know, looking and acting like the traditional fellow, but going for that anyway. And then what ways do you feel like the, the private sector experience worked in your favor once you were in the room with the fellows? What kind of experiences did you find yourself talking about the most? Yeah. So, you know, I think the first thing that people ask, and I understand why, um, is, you know, how I, you know, cope with being surrounded by people who don't necessarily share the same, you know, political and civic views as myself. Um which, you know, is something that I've had to grapple with a little bit. But I also think that there are some things that can be learned from the private sector 
um, if that makes any sense, as far as the way that we operate um, and, you know, some of the principles that we use to optimize efficiency and save cost. Um, and so I try to bring that into the room and into the conversations as much as I can. So when people ask you what you do for a living these days, what's your go-to answer? Yeah, so I, um, I, I actually work in privacy law compliance um, at Tapestry, which is the fashion conglomerate formerly known as Coach Inc., um, Coach and Kate Spade and Star Reitzman. So what that actually means. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, what does that mean? That's probably the next question. Uh, not that that really like <laughs> clears it up very well. So what that means is ensuring that Tapestry remains compliant with the unfolding data privacy laws. So that's been primarily focused on the general data protection regulation um, or the GDPR. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that at all or if that's... I'll- Take your word for it, but keep going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that, um, you know, it's basically a regulation, a very broad regulation that was passed or that became enforceable in Europe in May in the EU. And it gives consumers basically first rights to their data. So like, you know, obviously, I think one of the first things people think of when they hear about that is like the Cambridge Analytica um, and Facebook kind of mm. scandal and, and that bit. But what the, GD, what the GDPR does is basically gives consumers the right to have any, you know, a number of actions be taken on their data. So you can ask to have your data deleted or you can, you know, the right to be forgotten you might have heard of. Um, or you can request to access your data and whatnot. Um, it's obviously, a, you know, it applies to any business that operates in the EU. So that's why it's relevant for us. Um, but I think like the more um, relatable you know, side of that um, is the way that it's impacting the laws in, in the U.S. Um, so as a California resident, um, mm. is there any chance you've heard of the California Consumer Protection Act, the CCPA? Uh, from time to time, yeah. Did you write that? Did you make that happen for us? So I wish I could say that I did. <laughs> um, and maybe one day we could, we could say that I had something to do with a similar law in New York State or New York City. Um, but until that time, um, you know, the, the, the California law, the CCPA has been passed. Um, I guess it was, you know, a ballot initiative or started by a ballot initiative. Um, those crazy California law processes. Yeah. we got a few of those. Yeah, um, last summer. And so if, you know, if a federal, if a federal data privacy law isn't passed in the next, you know, year, then the CCPA will, will become enforceable in 2020. And um, that will really, I think, imp have some really big impacts on the way that businesses run across the country because, you know, businesses never segment data by the, the state of residence of the person, yeah. you know. So it's as good as a national law. Um, so I think yeah, that makes it's really sense. exciting for. So then do you end up advising companies then in a lawyer capacity or when? Yeah companies run into trouble, then you come in and try to get them out of trouble? Like, What's the actual way that you're inter inter interacting with these folks? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. Um, and probably a big part of this, which I should have mentioned, is that I, um, you know, not only do I, I work internally at, at Tapestry, um, but I'm kind of like the IT person that's involved hmm. in it. So I partner very closely with our privacy office, which is a legal function. Um, but I am not a lawyer. Um, 
mm. much as I would maybe like to be at times. But I basically work with lawyers to understand what we need to do to be compliant and then figure out how to make it happen in the easiest and most practical way within the company. So that, yeah. So that you've seen all these ins and outs of privacy and data, did you do anything different in your own life to shore up your data security and to make sure you're locked up airtight? Like what kind of things did you end up doing? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I did, um, which I'm, I'm going to say without, without giving, you know, without kind of like being contrary to this is the changes I made to my password. Okay. Um, and I replaced my password with a phrase. Oh, interesting. So, you know, do you want to have a drink or something like that? Okay. Not like, you know, a crazy string of numbers. Um, mm. I like to think that makes it more easier to remember and you know, not such a big stretch. But, you know, that that's kind of been the big one for me. But is this, are these privacy laws something that impacts your role at all or your, your world? Oh, that's a good question. Um, maybe a little bit in the sense that, you know, I've worked with schools, worked with kids. And so obviously there's a lot of privacy things that you would want in place when you have info uh, yeah. dealing with, with kiddos under, under 18. But we have a lot of fellows who... Um, yeah, are handling large amounts of data for a variety of things, whether it's political or otherwise. So yeah, I think everyone is, is keyed up on making sure things are protected, but also uh, yeah, trying to fight the good fight that companies aren't being capricious with the info they have and selling everybody out just to make some make some money. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like another, you know, something that I feel very strongly about is the way, you know, the, the way that the U.S. has kind of set up like the industry and the world of Internet companies and companies that are reliant on users data is like we have a very business centric model um, for capitalism, I guess you could say, whereas Europe has always, you know, has a long history of putting the data subjects first. Mm. And I think we need to, you know, at some point grapple with how much we want to go in that direction and, you know, what other impacts that will have on our business culture. Um, not that I, you know, not that I would argue against some changes to our business culture, <laughs> but I think it's, it's much bigger than just, a, you know, a privacy law, especially in one state. Yeah. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about privacy, a little bit more about the East coast and some other things. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Zag. We'll be right back. All right, let's talk fashion since you're working with with fashion-minded folks. How would you describe your your fashion sense, your style? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, I I think um I've always been a very creative person and I've always worked, you know, I studied economics and I was worked in IT. Hmm. So that is, you know, those have always been industries <laughs> have been roles that didn't allow me to be as creative as I would like to be and I have an inclination to be like and you should see my apartment. It's like crazy. Like there's like, <laughs> I, I like hot glued fabric on the couch one day. So I was like, I didn't do it if I want to. It's my couch, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I enjoy the fact um, that, it, that it is a fashion company and that we, you know, can at least like have some tie into a creative, fascinating industry. Um, but... You know, I, I think that's also something that made me really enjoy this privacy law bit because like the whole legal way of thinking about things, like it really is an art versus a science. 
Hmm. Um, and it is certainly not, you know, certainly a far cry from being actually creative, but it's a step in the right direction, I think. Yeah. And do you pay attention to any of the, the ways that some of our political figures end up being, whether they're in being intentional or not, fashion icons of sort. I think about <laughs> Michelle Obama or um, like Justin Trudeau and and, and folks who uh, get noticed for things that aren't necessarily political. Does that ever yeah. ca- catch your eye or do you ever like want to grab a candidate or two who's got super baggy clothes and a bad sense of style and try to shake things up? Like what, what kind of ways do you view all that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely do. And I think especially, I mean, more than ever, you know, with the Trump White House, fashion has become a part of politics, whether we like it or not. Hmm. Um, I mean, the first thing I think was the whole Ivanka Trump line, you know, right? I remember. So actually, I don't know how much of this I should be talking about, but, um, but coach does wholesale with Nordstrom and they were one of the first people to drop, um, drop Ivanka Trump's line. So I remember like, the day when that happened, like I called up the folks in Nordstrom and I was like, guys, you know, this is great. <laughs> but so I think like it's interesting how you know and then of course people people I work with were saying well they're dropping it because nobody's buying it you know not because like they're trying to make a statement but uh, yeah I don't care you know it's good enough for me yeah but um and then and then too you know I think about the the uproar over Melania's jacket when she was getting on the plane and some other things right I mean it, it's hard to separate fashion and and, and politics in, in some of these cases yeah yeah, it, it is. Um, I was going to say my second point on that was, I don't know if, if you noticed, but I've been um, Melania Trump in in compromising situations mm. um, for the last two Halloweens, at least one night. <laughs> so, so my my most the costume I'm most proud of is the Hurricane Harvey one with the stilettos. Oh, there you um, go. Yeah, that was very stylish and not practical at yeah. all. Yeah. And like with the sunglasses, you know, and the resemblance is like maybe a little bit unsettling even. But I still did it again this year and everybody was like, why didn't you write that? I don't care. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm, this is, that was the kids at the border. I'm being the Hurricane Harvey. So separate instances. Yeah. You know? There's too many choices, too many things to pick from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's all becoming a blur, but they were really different. Um, I promise. Nice. Hey, last, last thing. What uh, should folks pay attention to in New York moving forward after Tuesday? There was a lot of good progressive news that came out of the city, came out of the state, especially in the the state house. What kind of things should people keep, yeah. keep, keep an eye on? Yeah, yeah. So that's a um, very good question. I'm glad that you asked. Probably far more important than, you know, fashion or... <laughs> than jackets, yeah. But, um, yeah. So... That was, you know, obviously a huge night for the state of New York. Um, you know, I think the most important thing in my mind is the state Senate, um, where we actually had one of our 2015 alumni, um, Alessandro Biaggi, won a, a Senate seat, um, actually toppling the leader of, so, you know, she won in the primary against um, a, a Democrat who was part of this group called um, called the IDC, the Independent Democrats um, Caucus which I don't know if you know many people that are listening are into you know aware of this, but I remember when I first came to know about this caucusing group of Democrats in our state house um, as somebody who doesn't come from politics and you know kind of assumed that when you vote for a Democrat you're getting a Democrat, you know, <laughs> you would hope, Democrats, and that will uphold like the liberal values that you believe in if you're voting for a Democrat and. 
it to me, it was just crazy that there's this group of Democrats that votes with the Republicans every time. And I just remember thinking, like, how is this possible in our state? But it was for a really long time. And did they um, make the case yeah. that it was a way, I feel like I remember reading it was leveraged somehow. They felt like they were able yeah. to, to extract more by playing that game. Did anybody actually buy that or did they just try to convince themselves of that? No, so I, I'm still, I mean, you know, I won't claim to be a political expert, but I'm still yet to become aware of an issue that they gave some and then the Republicans gave some and then we were able to get something passed that we wanted to. Um, so I, I don't know. I think like it just ended up with them getting nicer offices in Albany. And, <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, I think it's bizarre. You know, I think um, there are so many things that you think like we have a majority, you know, but it's like, but the, there's these people that aren't even voting as Democrats and it's ludicrous. That they were able to fly under the radar, I think, with voters for so long. But um, as of Tuesday, we have a Democratic majority in both houses of our state legislature. And, you know, also at a national level, we are finally a true blue state, which is yeah. far overdue. But, um, you know, I think like the the state um, on, on the state level, that's going to be what I'm most interested to watch. Yeah, I think I think for me, I'm curious to see what position this puts Cuomo in, because I, I don't doubt that he has presidential aspirations and wants to be considered as a presidential contender mm-hmm. but he's like weirdly at least in my mind uh feels too centrist for the for the times i feel like you know only when cynthia nixon really started picking up some steam for a moment there did he start tacking in a more progressive way and i'm curious if the the change in the state house will will encourage him to be more progressive or or will make him stick out in an even more uh, unusual way because he is kind of towing this this kind of past tense is, yeah. democratic approach where it's it's not as progressive as the people want it to be. I don't, I don't know where it'll go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know on, on a lot of fronts, and also I think you know the dynamic between De Blasio, you know, the mayor of New York City, and Cuomo as the governor of the state is really a fascinating dynamic, and I think one that also puts a lot of pressure on politicians to kind of make it clear whether they're out for themselves or out for their constituents who they're supposed to be, you know, standing up for. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe I said the last question, but maybe one more to sneak in here. If you had to advise someone to ride the subway in New York or try to ride the Metro here in Los Angeles, what, what kind of, mm-hmm. which one would you tell them to pick? <laughs> well, funny question, since I've actually never ridden a Metro in Los Angeles. Oh, but there's plenty. That was the the trap I was trying to lay for you because I feel like the New York subways are taking such a beating right now. It's better to roll better to roll the dice with an unknown like the LA subway. The oh, way things that okay. seem to be playing out over there. I was gonna say, is there an LA subway? Oh, we got the most lines under construction right now. We are we are making our way slowly but surely to a almost twentieth century yeah. existence in public transit. Who knows? Yeah. So th- this might actually be another bad thing for me to say, but you know, I'm not the most filtered probably person. Um, is that, you know, I live in Soho, um, mm. Manhattan, downtown, and I work in Midtown. So my subway commute is probably one of the most, you know, typical and, mm. you know, ridden by people who, you know, a certain type of people. And on a, like, scary amount of times, my subway works fine. Oh, that's I good. That says a lot. I mean, it's good for me, but it's also like... yeah. Exposes the problems for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like, and then how it, is this possible? You know, when there's, yeah. when 
there's so many, so many problems, you know, when you go even just one step out of like the heart of it all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck. Good luck fixing that subway. It's only what they market at like 10, $10 billion needed in the next couple minutes to try to fix it. So. Yeah, and then the guy quit who was supposed to like today or something. The guy was supposed to be in charge of the overhaul. Oh, really? So, that guy was getting a lot of yeah. press. He, why, why did he quit? Yeah. Probably because he was like making all the side money off of lobbying, but oh. probably turn off the recording <laughs> at this point. Good times. All right. Well, hang in there out in New York. Good luck with everything. Hang in there with the rain and bring it our way if you can. And thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. If you're in any danger, we're definitely pulling for you. Evacuate if you need to in places like Malibu or Ventura. We're pulling for you. Everyone else, enjoy the weekend. Catch all past episodes of The Zag in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the places you get them. More episodes next week, so stay tuned. Until then, we'll talk to you later.